All right, welcome. So right off the bat, I have to tell you, I got three things going against me today. Number one, I'm short. You can probably barely see me over the monitors here. Number two, well, I'm kind of a back-end person, so I really don't get in front of crowds that often, and I'm really, 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 really nervous right now. This guy told me he was going to fall asleep when he was walking in. He told his buddy, true story, told his buddy, keep me awake during this, so he must have seen me before. <laughs> right? And then number three, I'm ESL. Spanish is my first language, so I may bust out in some Espanol while I'm doing this, so don't hold that against me either. All right, so my name is George Gurchow. I'm a Vice President of Security and Compliance with a company called Sumo Logic. Uh, we're located in the Valley. Very progressive company. We were born native to AWS seven years ago. Very highly regulated company. Don't come hacking me because I said that. Especially this guy with the long hair right over here. I can already tell you're up to no good. I'm just jealous, that's all, bro. Four things against me, I'm bald too. So we're going to talk today about, we were kind of created in this whole DevSecOps culture before it became a popular buzzword. And, and you know, one of the biggest takeaways that I'm going to be able to give you guys today is that I think that now is a crucial time to start invoking that kind of methodology. If your shop doesn't already have it today, if you're more of a waterfall-based type shop, uh, slow change management type process, the time is now as you're building modern apps. Because as you're starting to assemble a lot of these apps built with microservices um, and the way that they communicate and leveraging cloud computing, I think it's a real vantage point. That's one of the things that we're going to go over. It's kind of a six-step methodology on how to get there and then take a look at our environment as well, too. Uh, one of the biggest things is right at the bottom there, which is security is collaboration. It's across the board. Everyone has got to buy in. So there's always been like this, this, this notion of, you know, what does it really take to be a good security person in today's world? Is it someone who's super technical, right? Off the charts technical that can just write multiple scripts and queries all over the place? Or is it more of the business analyst person that knows the strategy of where the company's headed? I think it's a combination of those two things, but I also think there's one third very key element when it comes to security leadership that everyone in this room, eventually, if you want to start moving towards this, no matter what part of IT you're in, is evangelism. You've got to be able to talk. You're not in your head, but you're probably one of them Unix girls, right, that has all the lights off, looking like a vampire at work, right? Don't come near me. Don't talk to me. Those days are over. We've got to be able to communicate what's happening within our organization and sell, drive, and market it to our own internal community. Or else what we're going to have is lapse in communication, failure, and people are not going to buy in. And that's the worst thing that can happen. Because to this day, the, the main two things that affect our security environment, on-prem, off-prem, it doesn't matter, end users and endpoints. Every single time. And we'll kind of go through some examples about that as well, too. So starting at the beginning and baking it in from the very, the very, very beginning. This is so funny because like walking around this conference, you know, like Kubernetes is like the big buzzword right now, containers, and how are we going to lock that down? The, the biggest thing with security is limiting the surface layer of attack. And so when people start talking about containers in general, and I'll kind of walk through this example here in a second, if I start thinking about like just the basics of the very beginning, the planning stage, lock down the host, lock down the infrastructure, things like namespaces within Linux, right? making sure that I have isolation and separation between privileged admin rights and user rights. Instilling that from the very beginning is key. Again, we're at a new paradigm right now to where, think about when we used to build VMs. And by the way, I, I, used to, I used to work for VMware for quite a while, and I did security there. 
The funny thing about VMware and virtual machines back in the day was people would go P to V and they'd bring the same crap that they had in that P environment into that V environment, right? All they would do is virtualize it. With containers, we now have a new opportunity to have the rigor to go back and say, do we really need this process running? Does that agent need to be loaded? Does that service need to be running on that box? Look at it like TPS reports, right? Do I still really need those? Am I gonna have to go on ahead and come in on Sunday just to be able to deliver that? All right, so that planning stage is absolutely critical. Then we get to the coding stage. Okay, and again, if I, if I take this back to kind of the containers and what's starting to take place today, if, if I'm in that coding stage, now's the time when I really wanna start looking at the registry and make that from, from code to container that everything looks correct. What are the calls that am I doing? Am I going to a public registry like Docker Hub or not? If I'm using Docker Hub, is it a trusted source? So Docker Hub last year had something like, I think it was 12.5 billion checks. I guarantee you that at least 50% of every image uploaded in Docker Hub has a vulnerability in it. So you gotta understand where it is that you're, you're, you're getting your code from and how that's working. The build stage, same thing, tightly collaborate when you're building this, and again, kind of the advantage of containers and cloud computing is I don't have to have three separate builds now going across my, my QA environment and my production environment. Everything should look the same with some tweaks as I push it out into production. Then finally, testing. You know, so when I'm working with testers, when I'm doing vulnerability scans at each single stage of this development lifecycle of the CI/CD pipeline, I need to make sure that I have that kind of visibility that I need. So the continuous improvement, continuous delivery um, pipeline is key to having a security pipeline. And that's what we call it internally at Sumo Logic is a security pipeline. And then finally, the release stage. When I release it out into the wild, have I covered most of the vulnerabilities possible within my environment? Now here's something else that I'll say as well too, and this, this is straight up has to do with cloud computing. When you think about our on-prem world, the notion was hard shell soft center, right? If I protect the perimeter, everything inside of it's gonna be okay. In cloud computing, even though I'm a gigantic fan of cloud, you have to look at it like it's a hostile deployment from day one. This guy might be my neighbor, right? He already looks like he's hostile. And he's gonna be even more hostile because I just pointed him out in front of the crowd. But that's what you have to assume whenever you release something into a cloud multi-tenant type environment. Okay, and then finally, the operational rigor that it takes to be able to do continuous checks, monitoring, patching, updates. And we have this concept, like with containers, that we're never really gonna patch anything, we're just gonna deliver the latest image out there. Well, a lot of times it doesn't work that way. There's still some stateful environments that exist out there, and I know that we have some out there as well, for sure. So to me, security, the number one place that it starts, let's forget about marketing and sales just for a second, it starts with engineering all the way. If the engineers don't have the rigor to start looking at their code from a secure perspective from minute one, day one, and then keep that going in the future, it's over for your company. At some point or another, that kind of DNA is gonna start setting your company back when it comes to productivity and development. The days of building some code, throwing it over to the operational people to set it up, and then having security bolt something on afterwards, is over. We all got to kind of work together from the beginning, and I'll give some good examples around that. Well, I'll, I'll, actually, I'll give you guys one right now. 
I have been recently in an environment to where a company was using one password and one login. Okay, so two different vaults, SSO, to be able to get some things done within the environment. After doing a quick DLP scan within an engineer's Google Drive, found a open doc with every single username and every single password for that engineer across their personal apps and business apps, and guess what? Every single password was pretty much the same. 65 Macy, bang, 65 Macy, pound, just a little variation at the end of every single one of those. This is an engineer. Okay, and so what that meant was, hey, let's go back and let's do a spot check on this guy and see, is he really using these vaults? Not using the vaults. All of a sudden, you get a junior engineer that joins. This guy trains him, the senior engineer, and passes that kind of hygiene down. It's exactly what we don't want within the environment. Real-time alerting is more critical than it's ever been. Right? By time, if, if you're in a reactive state all the time, again, it's over. You know, look at the, the S3 data leakages that recently took place, which, by the way, we all know wasn't AWS's fault. It was the consumer's fault. No offense to anyone who might be in the room from Verizon or Dow Jones or any one of those companies that was affected by that. Shared responsibility model, but real-time alerting helps out tremendously. And then finally, enabling process to be able to have developers make changes and drive innovation at any given time, which directly affects things like change management, which I'm going to talk about in a second. So these are the six steps that we've come up with over the course of seven years. Now, for you, you maybe take one or two of them. Maybe you have seven or eight that you add to the cycle. We review this every year. But going through code analysis, change management, compliance monitoring, threat investigation, vulnerability monitoring, and then finally, security training, these are the six components to changing the DNA of a company to become more of a DevSecOps organization. And let's start breaking these down. So the first one, code analysis. Being able to release code in very, very small chunks is the beginning of the key, right? So an agile development process, not a large waterfall type scrum. We do eight to 10 pushes a day. That's not a whole lot. Our goal is to get to 40, right? Someone like Etsy does 40 to 80 pushes a day sometimes, right? But if you release it in small chunks, that gives you the ability to look at that code quicker in an automated fashion to check for vulnerabilities. Also, sitting in scrums. You know, so for any security people that are in the room, try to sit in on scrums as much as you possibly can. You know, so stand with your developers on a daily basis or listen in and see what they did yesterday, what they're going to do today, and then what their projection is for tomorrow. That'll open your eyes to a lot, as well as getting to understand that continuous improvement, continuous delivery supply chain. Now, here's my all-time favorite. Change management. If you were ever going to fall asleep, fall asleep when you hear someone talk about change management. This is what's absolutely killing the old IT world. What's your name? Yeah. What is it? Martin. Martin. Okay, so, ¿hablas español? Que bueno. Tengo uno hermano aquí en el cuatro. Okay, so, so Martin over here, Martin and I work together, right? And so usually the way change management works is I come up to Martin and I say, and I'm gonna get really short here in a second, hey listen, I wanna distribute Patches across 6,500 servers sometime over the next couple weeks. Here's the testing program that I did. How does it look to you? Martin says, looks awesome because he trusts me because I'm kind of a data center ninja. Short one, but I'm still one. What's her name? Becca. Becca. So Becca all of a sudden sits in the cab, which by the way, we all wait a week. We go to, we sit in this cab. Some people dial in. We get donuts, coffee, Joe Cola, ding-dongs, whatever it may be to keep us awake. 
Okay? And so Becky over here takes a look at the changes and says, oh, it's not going to affect backups reports. I say we let George roll it out, but wait, what did Martin and George put out for a backup program in? Well, our backup program is going to be, I undo what I did. Literally, I used to put that in change management tickets. I'm going to undo what I did. So then, next Wednesday rolls around, push out all of those changes, patches across the board, blow up half the environment. And then, by the way, if I, while I'm making those changes, if I see some other changes that need to be made, I'm going to go ahead and make those too. You know why? I'm an admin, I'm a developer, and I can do it. So we had this whole concept of plan, do, check, act. Decent at planning between myself, Martin, and Becca. I love doing. Give me a button to push, it's happening. Right? And don't ever put me in the Pentagon. <laughs> the checking piece we're terrible at. We're horrible at it. We never go back and verify if any unplanned changes took place. Okay? And then the act pieces were, were supposed to improve over time. This monolithic process goes on forever. And by the way, I didn't even talk about the emergency change, which I was the emergency change king. Why did I do emergency changes? Well, one, because I could. I would submit emergency changes at the last minute so I could just get things done and not have to go through this process. Well, today's world is different. So to give you an idea at Sumo Logic, what we do, any developer at any given time can submit for any change. We do it through Slack, which we're going to do a Slack demo here today. So through, that, uh, through Slack, we have a bot called Bender Rodriguez that listens for the word change. A ticket submitted, it automatically opens up a JIRA ticket. Five out of seven of us have to approve that ticket. If there needs to be a discussion, we do it very, very quickly. But that change either gets approved or disapproved within 24 hours. And then the change gets pushed. If the change gets disapproved and the JIRA ticket gets populated and that developer comes back and submits the same change again without making any further changes, we now have an education problem. But that's how fast it takes place. This is the modern world. And when I talk about patch management, we'll roll out 9,000 to 12,000 patches across our boxes in AWS. Again, we're 100% multi-tenant in AWS in 24 hours. It's our SLA. That's what we do. Very, very different. So again, if you're ever going to fall asleep, go to an ITIL conference and listen to a change management talk. This is a big one, too. And again, kind of one of those subjects, right, that's a little iffy. Security people got such heartburn with compliance. I love compliance. Compliance funds my security. PCI all of a sudden has a new reg around multi-factor authentication. Hey, PCI says so. I now need multi-factor authentication. GDPR, oh my god, GDPR is coming. The world's coming to an end. The right to be forgotten. Data erasure, what are we going to do as a company? Lose 4% of our revenue, up to $20 million, whichever one's greater. I'm using GDPR to get DLP across my Bastion host. That's what I'm doing. You have to tightly couple compliance with security. And here's the key. While you're making these changes, while you're submitting these pushes, do compliance evidence gathering at that time. So then that way, you're in the state of continuous audit. An auditor comes in. You now have the evidence for compliance right then and there instead of disrupting your organization and asking the developers for the same evidence over and over and over again. Couple the two, security and compliance. Threat investigation. So this is more like right around that stage where I start pushing it out to production. 
just because I did all of this testing going through the building stage, the planning stage, the testing stage, doesn't mean that when it's rolled out into production, there may be some new variables that don't bring threats into the environment. So it's something that you continuously have to do and you need some help from development. So our security team, again, very combined to start looking for any kind of threat feeds that may come in externally, any, any kind of internal attacks that may take place. This is a huge thing for us. And then also vulnerability management. So vulnerability management, this is constant pen testing of your platform, of your code, ASV scans. So automated ASV scans, every single time that there's a new build out there, continuous ASV scans across your existing builds that are in a stateful type environment, and then coming to that remediation path of 24 hours or less to get the problem solved. Very cool to be able to do that on an ongoing basis. And again, this is the merging of development, security, and IT ops to be able to do this. The last one. The last one I need to take a drink of water for. How many developers do we have in the room? All right, so quite a few, that's good. You people are my favorite. So this is what we do with developers. You know, so one, I talked before about, you know, like kind of like how we coach and encourage developers all the time, but you have to do certain things, you know, on a constant basis to train developers. One of the main ones that we do, developers love for some reason to put their credentials into Slack. And I'm not talking about clear credentials, I'm talking about encrypted credentials. But that's still a problem. So whenever a developer in our organization does that, we get notified and we make that developer rotate their credentials across the entire organization. That's very complex for those of you who are not developers to be able to do. So the developer has to do that, then they have to do a lunch and learn on why they had to do that, exactly what steps they had to go through to do that, and then every developer in the company sees that, starts changing behavior. The other thing that we do is we send a group of developers every year to DEF CON. Not Black Hat, I'm sorry, Black Hat might as well be RSA, it's a marketing type function. I get together with my friends, I go shooting machine guns because vendors get to take me out, wonderful at Black Hat, but I mostly attend B-sides, but you send them to DEF CON. And before you send it to DEF CON, which I'm more than happy to share the deck, you guys will get my Twitter handle at the end of this, we give them a deck that shows them, number one, how to dress, wear all black. <laughs> number two, where to stay, don't stay at the stratosphere. We had a guy do that. Number three, do not use your own mobile device at DEF CON or you will end up on the wall of shame. Two years ago was the worst wall of shame I've ever seen. It was nude photos being grabbed off of people's phones. Brutal, okay? So what does this do though, sending a developer or two to DEF CON? Well, they get to see people who are at a very high technical acclimate when it comes to development and engineering that think about what first? Security, hacking, because there's ethical and unethical hacking. It scares the crap out of those developers. Then they take that information, come back, lunch and learn, spread the wealth. Now look, OWASP training and all that stuff is great. It's good to do that, but it's a little different when you see things like that in person. And so that continues that drive and that push of changing the DNA of the developer and making sure that they're consciously thinking about security first. So very key to close the cycle with that. Now, I didn't talk about marketing and salespeople. Marketing and salespeople, well, they're kind of an anomaly. Because I look at those two as always the biggest threat within any environment from an end user type perspective. That's just continuous training and monitoring nonstop, especially around password hygiene like I mentioned before. 
You know, so as much as you can do to do pass deep password checks and force cryptic passwords with end users, MFA, that's going to solve you a lot of problems. So kind of going back and taking a look at this, you know, so again, whether it's on-prem, off-prem, whether it's related to containers and a lot of the technology that's, that's coming out in the future, these six steps are things that you could incorporate in your organization today to start closing the loop on how to build a DevSecOps shop. You gotta start somewhere. So a lot of times it could be with number six, maybe security training with the engineer from a smaller type company. A lot of times where I see the most improvement is gonna be with step number three, that long, tedious, worthless change management program. And accelerating that and being able to audit that to make sure that your company's moving in an agile type fashion. Okay, so kind of a busy slide. But how do we apply all this? So, so what does the environment look like? So for our environment, again, very highly regulated. So ISO 27001 for the fourth year in a row. And that's very key. So for those of you that don't understand compliance or don't really get that, ISO 27001 is a very rigorous audit process that goes through your policies and procedures. Year four is a big deal because when you meet with a company or you're evaluating a vendor and that vendor says, we just got ISO 27001, number one, congratulations. But number two, come back and talk to me year two. And I'll tell you why. ISO 27001 year one is a lot like dating. You say what you're going to do in year one. Baby, I'm going to do all these things for you. Friday night, surf and turf. Saturday night, we'll have your folks over. We'll play charades. Year two, you get measured on what you did and didn't do. It's huge to get it year two. Okay? And the reason why that, that's such a valuable cert is because, again, you get inspected on it rigorously. And also, if you are a vendor out there or if you do business with people who are going to inspect you with those 900-page questionnaires, this should alleviate a lot of that. Okay, so ISO 27001, CSA star, which you all should know, 650 different questions across six multiple domains. And then we also have PCI 3.2, which this is our fourth year round in PCI, HIPAA assisted in the cloud. Okay, SOC 2 type 2, going through FedRAMP right now, and then GDPR, oh my God. So all of those things are happening in this environment. So it's a simple architecture. Um, the way that it works is, we have the Internet of Things or all of our customers coming in through elastic load balancers, which route them to four specific bastion hosts. The main one that I want you to focus on here is the receiver. So this is the way that we do key management. And again, this is a combination of operation, security, and development keeping this environment humming. So at that point, that's where our encryption starts working. So each customer that comes in gets assigned two keys, one for raw data, one for metadata. So look at it like a blue key and a red key. Those keys get rotated every 24 hours. That's very, very key as well, too. So the rotation of every 24 hours is what allows us to do PCI. So this, there's always these discussions about who's more secure, a multi-tenant environment or a single-tenant environment. Guess what? It depends on how you build it, right, and how you do data isolation, and especially how you do encryption. So then those keys get stored into a proprietary vault that exists off of S S3, dual-controlled shared responsibility model, it takes an operator from the blue team and the red team to be able to de decrypt that data. All of it's logged with Sumo Logic. It's our logging solution. It's what we do. So we log all activity via that vault through our own logging type solution. The other thing I want you to focus on is on the bottom. 
Okay, so this is a zero trust model. Right, we always talk about doing this on-prem. So whenever anyone comes into our environment, they have to go through either two bastion hosts. If you're on the security operations side, you go through a bastion host called HOP. When you go through HOP, you get a, a VM that's assigned its role by Apache Zookeeper, which has a 64-bit unique ID for that role. You can then SSH into any single box, but you can't SSH from one box to another box, which means no lateral movement. That's zero trust. Each box, as it gets spun up, also gets its role um, assigned by Apache Zookeeper. Each service is locked down to each user, each port, to each protocol. Again, no lateral movement within the environment. For AWS services, which we're going to get to here in a second. Um, so if you look at the top bucket where it says threat intelligence, we use threat feeds, you know, so can I say it? I'm going to say it anyway. So we use guard duty. We've been using guard duty for a while for our threat feeds. AWS was good enough to, to, to give us access to it early. We also use CrowdStrike, you know, so CrowdStrike's been a good partner to us to bring those threat feeds in. Again, logging those, and we combine that with a combination of VPC flow logs and CloudTrail and ELB. So those are the three main services from, from AWS that we use. Not that there's not value in things like AWS Config or the future of Inspector or where some of those things are headed, but those are the ones that are core to, to what we do. And again, all of that is, is logged through Sumo Logic. So it gives you an idea of what this environment looks like. Also, when it comes to encryption, Everything is TLS 1.2. We deprecated anything that's less than TLS 1.2. Everything is encrypted across every single disk within the environment. Certificates AES 256-bit encryption. And this takes a community, right? It's not just me and, you know, my engineers and, you know, our compliance person. This takes heavy work by development, especially when you start thinking about standing up new zones. You know, so as we're entering the year, I mentioned FedRAMP, you know, so we're looking at GovCloud 1. And then we're looking at things like Frankfurt as well, too. You know, so it takes a community of people with security built into their DNA to start constructing an environment that looks like this. And then more importantly, the continuous monitoring of it. Because every single year, threats go up. What do you think that is? So I'll open up here for a comment real quick. I've had more bug bounties in the last three months. Again, don't go hacking me. In the last three months than we have probably in the last four or five years before that. Why is that? Anyone want to take a guess? Does it have something to do with this conference? There's more critical data in AWS than there ever has been before. AWS is now a target. So anyone who resides in AWS that houses critical data is a target. Hackers are going to target where the data is, where sensitive information is for years. And I still make fun of Microsoft, I'm sorry. Like, like having to get ready for this session, we were laughing because this is a Windows box and I'm completely clueless on this thing. But Microsoft actually has really good security people, some of the best in the world, but they were targeted because they own the data center. They own the operating systems. It's not that they sucked at security. Just like at VMware, vSphere, Hold the big footprint, so you're going to become a target. So keep that in mind as you're building out these shops. You are now part of a large surface layer of attack. And so you've got to step up your game every single year. Last thing I'll mention on this before I leave this slide. We went from traditional penetration testing, which I talked about before, to leveraging more of a bug bounty style penetration testing. 
And what that gave us is a very unconventional way to attack our environment with ethical hacking and escalated privileges. You gotta start constantly thinking forward as to what's coming down the pike next. All right, so for our demo. So one of the things also that, that's a little bit frustrating, look, you know, again, you know, huge fan of cloud computing, multi-tenant type environment, obviously love AWS or I wouldn't be here. But one of the things that's really troublesome when it comes to threat detection, threat monitoring, is going to multiple UIs to get stuff done. What are, how many people use Slack in this room? Same, same. Huge Slack shop, right? So I don't want to leave Slack. That's where we do everything. So what we've done here is we've written a query, a simple check to go out and look for VPC flow logs and look at potential bad IPs coming in. And so what we did was we combined this with a webhook from our product Sumo Logic to integrate back into CrowdStrike's uh, Falcon host to be able to grab these threat feeds. Right? So there's the webhook, attaches back into, um, into CrowdStrike, and then also talks to VPC flow logs. Okay, so now here's where we're getting that IP information coming from VPC flow logs. And then now I'm in Slack. Okay, so that, that's the back end of it. This is the front end. I am never going to leave Slack to be able to do this, but I'm gonna switch back and forth to show you what's happening underneath the covers. So the first thing is, all of a sudden, when I get a bad IP that comes in, which this happens all the time now, it's identified by CrowdStrike, high probability of blacklisted IP, and a bad actor associated with it, it's gonna automatically open up a Jira ticket and populate everything that I'm doing within this Slack channel on the back end. Okay, so the first thing that I'm gonna do is now all of a sudden I got the ticket, it's opened up. I'm gonna go out and look at Pwned. For those of you that look at Pwned, the very first thing I'm going to do is one of our users logs in is check that email and see if it has recent hack history. For any of you who haven't used that site before, I know many of you have, look at it, it's awesome. It'll show you every single email that's been hacked within your organization. We have automated scripts to be able to do this. But now I'm verifying, has that email been hacked recently, okay? It's gonna come back and it's gonna populate those results again in Slack and in Jira to, to allow me to go through my next steps. The next step that I'm gonna take beyond that is I'm not gonna go to ThreatCrowd, okay? And so I'm gonna look at ThreatCrowd for the domain results to see if it's a viable domain for that address. The step beyond that that I'm gonna take is looking at the IP results that come back. And that's gonna give me more information about that IP about that end user coming back in, again, via Slack, all in one location, populating that JIRA ticket. More importantly, this is the one I really care about, the bad actor family that's associated with that blacklisted IP. So in this case, it happens to be NJ Rat. And for some reason, NJ Rat likes picking on us. Not sure why. But we find that a lot of the blacklisted IPs that we have coming in come from NJ Rat, known bad actor within the environment, bad actor family. So now we have that information within Slack as well too. So getting deeper on the forensics. Finally, I wanna know if this human, right, who's trying to log in really exists and get some more information about them. So I'm gonna go back to LinkedIn and see what kind of information I can get about this person and then populate that also in the Jira ticket. Now, another thing to understand that's really cool about this is at any given time within this Slack interface, I can click on any one of these and it's gonna send me to the back end of that. So whether it's the threat crowd or whether if, if it takes me back out to Pwned, any one of those, it will take me to that interface itself. But again, I wanna be able to do this all via Slack. And each security incident we have opens up through its own different Slack channel. 
Okay, and then now here's finally where I'm archiving all of that information in the Slack channel related back to that Jira ticket. So this is cool, right? So far, this is great. I've gotten a lot of information. I've detected it's a bad IP coming in. I've taken some action to determine if it's a human or not. I've now started to get an understanding of a bad actor family associated with it. But this is still kind of like going to the doctor and the doctor says, man, I think you're going to have a heart attack. Next, fix it, right? So now these buttons across the bottom, which are actionable within Slack, we've provided a bunch of different options that I can now take in an automated fashion. One of them is I can activate multi-factor authentication directly from here, okay, just with the click of a button. The next one is one of my favorites. Whoops, that's not my favorite. The next one is I can reset the password, okay, which is most likely the first step that I'm going to take. Email notification back to that user, to that customer saying, hey, listen, we're finding some funky stuff going on. You got a blacklisted IP. Because a lot of times, just because I have a blacklisted IP doesn't mean that it's necessarily a bad actor, right? Those IPs can be repurposed. Think about the way IPs work in AWS. What's mine, Becca's tomorrow, right? They all change. I can block that IP. This is cool. So now I can come back in and say, okay, based upon what I'm seeing through VPC flow logs, through this bad actor family, let me automatically set up a rule within my security groups to block this IP, all directly from Slack. And then finally, archiving off that channel. So on the back end, this should be familiar, right? So here's now where I'm denying that IP coming in through that security group in AWS. So I automatically click that block IP button. I can now start seeing the rejects across VPC flow logs, across the environment for that IP. But now here's something else I can do that's pretty cool too, is I can come back and say, okay, well, let me also start looking for any other kind of blacklisted IPs at this time. I want to just start blocking them all immediately in case I'm under attack. So now I've written another query. And again, this is all, it all comes out in JSON as well too, to start blocking these IPs. And here it is straight through VPC flow logs. You can start seeing that the number of rejects I have within the environment are going high. I still have some accepts though coming in within the environment. So now I've written a deeper query to go out there and start blocking all of the IPs that could be associated with that bad actor family that may be possibly coming into the environment all at once. So that's all the back end, but to do most of this, I could just stay in Slack and never, ever, ever have to leave that interface. This is now, again, where we're starting to merge this operations and security and development lifestyle. And, and the great thing too that I didn't mention up front is as that Slack channel gets built, the appropriate, based upon the alert that I get, the appropriate people get invited to that Slack channel. You know, so if it's an, an internal thing, it's all internal. One of the things that we do that's pretty effective is if it's an external thing, okay? So let's say we have someone that says, look, we have a data breach or we believe someone has been breached which happens, it's not necessarily our fault, right? We can have someone, you know, again, that example I gave earlier, who's brilliant enough to use their personal password on their Gmail our solution, and all of a sudden that account gets breached. Well, it's a breach, it's not our breach, but it's their breach. We also automatically open up an outbound Slack channel. So then that way we have two running simultaneously. Outbound, so we can communicate with whoever those individuals are and have archived whole list, which by the way becomes my post-mortem for security on the event and then also works for compliance, and then I have the inbound channel while we're doing troubleshooting at the same time. So real critical to be able to close that loop, get to remediation, and get to that audit piece of it. Okay, so there was a lot of information. By the way, you guys get access to the Slack bot that we use 
for both the threat response as well as change management. But key takeaways, number one, bake security into the DNA of your company across the board. You know, so I focus quite a bit on engineering. I think engineering is where innovation happens in every single company. So if you can start working it there first, it's going to protect your platform better than anywhere else. Streamlining those archaic processes. My gosh, again, change management. Anytime I start hearing someone bring that up, I'm like, this guy, I'm going to fall asleep. Not only is it boring, it's ineffective. It's just something that doesn't work for the environment. It was originally created, by the way, so I was an ITIL service manager, lived it, loved it back in the day. It was created to absorb a higher rate of change with less impact business. The complete opposite happened. It slowed everything down and the wrong measurement was put in place. We still break stuff, right? Automated process, DevOps type shop. I'm making a bet if I break something, I can fix it faster than I can to back it out. Zero trust security model. So if you're an organization now building containers, moving out to AWS, in AWS, now's the time to start with that defense and depth approach that we've always wanted to do, but have never been able to do. Stop and think about how ridiculous it was on-prem. A, a data center is a big server. It's network, storage, and compute. That's all it is. But what we would do is we'd build these great data centers, right? We thought they were great. Heating, cooling, everything else in them seems kind of silly today. But then now what I'd do is I'd take a firewall, plug it in. IPS, plug it in. Deep packet inspection, plug that sucker in. And then I'd spam all of that traffic through a single port. So I'd buy these great networking with all this backplane power, but then I'd spam these ports. Now, here's the funnier part of that. Why am I allowed to do scans? So I came from finance way back in the day. You cannot do scans during production hours. It'll slow things down. Well, when am I going to see the real data? During production hours, when things are moving, that's when I want to scan. So I'd have to wait and run scans at 2 o'clock in the morning. It was just me and my hermano Martin over here, the last ones in the shop, drinking a Corona, <laughs> running those scans, showing absolutely nothing. And then the next day, we'd have a vulnerability. And he'd get in trouble because I'd sell him out every single time. <laughs> I'm Panamanian. That's what we do. That's what happened on-prem. In the cloud, it's all different. All different. Just like the way that we measure things. One of the things I didn't mention on that slide, everything on the host. So host-based FIM, file integrity monitoring, host-based IDS. That means I'm constantly monitoring that environment, looking for threats, looking for changes, looking for potential vulnerabilities within the infrastructure all the time. And I want to do it at its peak because then I know exactly what's going on at any given time. So that zero-trust security model is absolutely critical to our survival in the future and be able to do proactive security. And then finally, threat intelligence. You know, so, hate to say it, but you know, day number three or number four when we brought in guard duty, we found a security group that was 0.0.0.0 slash any. Public facing, right off the bat. So you've got to leverage some of these things within your environment. I don't even know if AWS has announced it yet, I'm probably gonna get in big trouble, but again, Guard duty was pretty cool for us. So bring, bring in things like guard duty, tying that to things like CrowdStrike or whatever threat intelligence vendor or feeds are that you use on-prem. Don't get out of that habit using it in the cloud. Okay, 
So I purposely left some time for questions and open discussion. Does anyone have any questions or comments? I do trust CrowdStrike. So this is a great point. So the question was, and let me go back to this. Okay, so because I believe most of the questions are to come here. The question was zero trust, but I trust CrowdStrike. What if CrowdStrike gets hacked? Okay, and what if all of a sudden the information I'm getting from CrowdStrike is no longer valid? Well, I got to do good constant checks on CrowdStrike too to make sure they're keeping up with their threat feeds to make sure that I have the right uh, signatures coming in from CrowdStrike too. But at some point, you do have to trust mutual vendors within the security space. There is no silver bullet when it comes to security. It always takes an architecture to be able to deliver that. But it's a fair point. You gotta vet out your vendors on a constant basis. Yes, sir? This comes up all the time. Slack is not a security product. Slack offers so many security features, though, that people don't implement. I look at it just like I do the shared uh, responsibility model of AWS. You get an out-of-the-box version of Slack. And when you move to Slack Enterprise, there are a bazillion things that you can do to start locking down Slack. A ton of configuration changes, logging, monitoring, RBAC. Slack is a very, very robust tool. And yes, it's not a security tool, but it's a deep part of our threat response system and a deep part of the way we communicate. But you have to do your due diligence on top of what you get out of the box with Slack. Great point, though, because that comes up quite a bit. Yes, sir? Talk about uh, logging VPC full log. Can you, you actually centralize that? How do you go about centralizing that? If you have multiple VPCs, that data can be scattered. I did not plant this guy in the audience. Let me start off by saying that. So the, the comment was uh, with VPC full logs, you have multiple VPCs. How do you consolidate that? Oh, you got to use a tool, right? You know, because that's one of the issues with VPC full logs. First off, a lot of people don't even know how to turn them on. But the second piece is how do I consolidate that? How do I put it all in one location? Well, we're a logging company, Sumo Logic. That's what we do. So we bring all of those logs into one centralized location to be able to analyze those. So port protocol being used, source destination IP, packets dropped, packet rejects, which are big for us too. So you need a logging solution to be able to do that. And one that hopefully works in the cloud and is in the cloud. Don't use a logging solution on-prem. That doesn't make a lot of sense. Hey, Mr. CFO, I want to buy a logging solution on-prem to manage and secure the cloud. Give me some money. I need infrastructure. You get laughed out of the room. Any other questions? Yes, sir. Are you sending your logs into your, from your system into your own production system, or do you maintain a separate system? So here's another great question. So do we send the logs into our system from our production system, right? We do. So it's a multi-tenant environment. Okay, so that means that everyone kind of resides with each other, but has their own instance within Sumo, just like we do. The, so the disadvantage of that, a lot of people always say, well, what if, what if my neighbor gets hacked and then they can hack you and then go across all these different tenants? That's again where you got to do your homework, right? 
You have to be able to set up things to be able to protect your data, the way that we do encryption, for example, the way we do data tagging within AWS, the way that we do deliver those 64-bit unique identifiers to each single one of our customers to be able to protect that data. But it's a valid point. But what's the cool thing about multi-tenant? All of a sudden, I get CrowdStrike. So when I got CrowdStrike for my environment, guess who else got CrowdStrike? Who else? Take a guess. Everyone. Every single Sumo Logic customer got CrowdStrike the day that I did. For free. Because it's a multi-tenant environment. That's the advantage. I believe there's advantages in security as well too, but this is, this is a, 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 almost like a religious discussion when people talk about multi-tenant versus single-tenant. Single-tenant, I have this concept of, this is my own tenancy, this is my own environment, I don't have noisy neighbors, I'm not gonna share multiple resources across the environment. Well, there's a lot to be said for that sometimes, but at the same time, is that tr truly the elasticity of cloud? Do I really have infrastructure on demand? Can I do things like, encryption and key rotation every 24 hours to meet PCI. I'll challenge that all day long. But that's a really good question. Any other questions? I've heard like not one thing from this side of the room. I know I'm small and I'm trying to project over that way, but any questions from over there? Yeah, so, so, so great question. So if I, if I heard the question right, you were asking about best practices when it comes to compliance monitoring, right? Boo. <laughs> I'll say it. He said boo. I said boo. He brought up Splunk at a Sumo Logic presentation. Hey, look, I, I used Splunk when I was back at VMware, right? I mean, there's a lot of similarities between the tools, okay? Yeah. Yeah, no, absolutely. Look, look, it, 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 takes, it, it takes a reference architecture when you're locking down the cloud. It's not just going to be about Sumo Logic or whatever the other company calls themselves. <laughs> it, it, takes, it takes a full architecture. So for us, for example, yes, we do a lot of our compliance monitoring out of Sumo Logic, right? All of the logging comes out of Sumo Logic. But we tightly couple into other solutions as well, too. So things like Okta, for example, on the back end. You know, when it comes to things like SSO or MFA, you know, um, Snort. Again, we're grabbing those logs from Snort, right? But we use Snort for IDS. That is a really key part of our compliance monitoring. The biggest one that we use for compliance, though, is OSEC. So OSEC for file integrity monitoring across every single host. Again, we're gathering those logs through Sumo Logic, but if you're using that other company, it's almost the same concept, right? It's almost the same exact concept. The key to it, though, is to start doing it immediately when the changes start hitting your environment and accounting for the new evidence. That's where you get in trouble with compliance. Is like when all of a sudden when, when, when an auditor comes in, like we, we're literally going back through PCI first week of December, so next week, if we had to backtrack, oh my God, what are all the things that have changed over the course of the last year for PCI, you're in trouble. That's gonna be a long audit. So your question's a good one. It takes a reference architecture like that. GRC we don't do, you know, so, so we haven't found a need for GRC yet, but as we're growing, there could possibly be one in the future. 
But that's a good question when it comes to compliance. Any other questions? Yes, sir. Oh my God! I'm like Vin Diesel's tiny brother. That's funny. Got one from the crowd. All right, good for you. I'll get you. The Unabomber back there had to come and get me. All right, anyone else? Any other questions? All right, well, I'll be around. So I'm headed over to, to our booth. Let me go ahead and scoot this up all the way. Again, Sumo Logic. I am more of a back-end person, so if you guys want to talk to salespeople, that's not my realm. But we're in booth 1804 over at the Venetian. Thank you guys so much today for coming. Really appreciate it. And have a good